0: you have your Bible this morning, open it again to begin our time to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2, Philippians chapter 2. Let me read verses 12 and 13 to you to set the course of where we want to go this morning. Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Philippi, tells them, so then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. As we've been looking at these verses together, primarily at verse 12, we have seen that the key thought that's driving verse 12 and 13 together, is the command that Paul is giving to the church there at Philippi to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. As we think about this idea of working out our salvation, that is, walking with the Lord, pursuing godliness, pursuing holiness... As we mentioned last time we were together and looking at this passage, there's at least two extremes that people tend to have when they're desiring as true believers to work out their salvation. One of those extremes is what is often referred to as just letting go and letting God approach. Which basically says all I need to do is just to turn my problems over to God and just let Him do it, let Him handle it. The other extreme is one that I call just grabbing the bull by the horns approach that says, I'll do it myself. I will discipline myself. I will make sure that I get everything right. I make sure I dot all my I's, I cross all my T's when it comes to my Christian life. It will be up to me if I'm going to grow in the Lord. And understand, beloved, neither of those two are right. And as I thought about this, I realized this is the same mistake that we also, and people can also make, in regards to their work for the Lord, in regards to the salvation of others. That is, some will say that since salvation is all of the Lord, I don't need to do anything but just turn it over to the Lord. I don't need to pray for the salvation of others. I don't need to go out and share the gospel and proclaim the gospel to others. I don't need to plead with others to come to Christ because God's going to save whoever God is going to save. So I don't need to be worried or concerned or involved in any of that. But some make the mistake on the other side of that issue. Thinking that people's salvation is really almost dependent solely upon them, what they do or what they don't do, how it is that they evangelize, that if they don't do it right or they don't do it a certain way, then somehow God's not going to save people. And what you're dealing with in that situation and what you're dealing with here in Philippians 2 and verses 12 and 13 It's what we all have to wrestle with as we read and walk through the Word of God together. And that is there is a tension that is there in Scripture between God's sovereignty and activity in our lives and our responsibility and activity when it comes to our life. And brother, one must come to grip with the reality of this tension in Scripture when it comes to man's responsibility, man's activity, and God's sovereignty in God's activity. This is a tension that we must, first and foremost, accept by faith and what God's word says when God's word says it. But also, it is important that we appropriate it in a way that God's word presents it. Because if we don't, then we will fall into these types of extremes that we're talking about here. Of overemphasizing either God's sovereignty and activity, almost to the neglect of man's responsibility and man's activity, or we can err on the other side and where all we want to focus on and think about is man's responsibility, man's activity, but give very little thought, very little attention to God's sovereignty and God's activity. Let me just, for a moment, before we really jump into Philippians 2, looking at verse 13, let me just give you some examples of this tension. And the two examples we're going to look at in Scripture really portray what Paul is talking about here in Philippians chapter 2. If you will, join me in the Old Testament. Go back to the book of Exodus, to Exodus chapter 14. Go back to Exodus chapter 14. And in Exodus chapter 14, it is here we have the parting of the sea. God is in the process of delivering the children of Israel. They have come up to the the sea and they have the Egyptian army behind them. So they can't move forward. The only way they're going to be delivered is if God intervenes on their behalf. And the children of Israel are complaining against Moses. They're complaining and fearful of the situation that they find themselves in. Now I want you to pick the story up in verse 13. And as we go through this story, I want you to see again... The relationship, how in this story, on one hand, you're going to have man's responsibility and man's activity going on in their deliverance, but also you're going to have God's sovereignty and God's activity involved in it. Beginning in verse 13, Moses says to the people, do not fear. Stand by and see the salvation of the Lord which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you will never see them again forever. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. Here is Moses telling the people, you don't need to fear. God has promised to deliver you. God is solemnly going to intervene on your behalf. God is going to fight for you. But now notice when God speaks in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the sons of Israel to go forward. That is, you now need to move out. You need to go forward. Do what I told you to do. And notice now when you read verse 16 and verse 17. Verse 16, God is saying, here, Moses, here's what you need to do. While in verse 17, God says, here's what I'm going to be doing. Verse 16, as for you, lift up your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea and divide it. And the sons of Israel shall go through the midst of the sea on dry land. So here we see the people's responsibility, the people's activity, including Moses. He's to lift up his staff, stretch out his hands over the sea, and by doing that, divide the sea. And the sons of Israel will then to move forward by faith going across dry land. But while they are moving out and doing this, God says in verse 17, But as for me, behold, I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them. And I will be honored through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. Then the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I am honored through Pharaoh, through his chariots and his horsemen. The angel of God who's been going before the camp of Israel moved and went behind them. And the pillar of the cloud moved from before them and stood behind them. So it came between the camp of Egypt and the camp of Israel. And there was the cloud along with the darkness, yet it gave light at night. Thus the one did not come near the other all night. Here is God... Sovereignly and providentially protecting his people here by moving the cloud to be between the Egyptians and the children of Israel. But again, now we're back to man's activity, man's role, man's responsibility. In verse 21, Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land so that the waters were divided. And the sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land and the waters were like a wall to them on the right hand and on their left. Then the Egyptians took up the pursuit and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. And at the morning watch, the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. He caused their chariot wheels to swerve. He made them drive with difficulty. So that the Egyptians said, let us flee from Israel for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. And the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and over their horsemen. So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak while the Egyptians were fleeing right into it. Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And notice verse 30. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And when Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. What do we see happening here? We see God... Sovereignly acting, fighting on the behalf of the Israelites, protecting them from the Egyptians, and then destroying the Egyptian army right there in one moment. Yet we see that the Israelites, led by Moses... Followed the Lord and what the Lord had called on them to do. The Lord called on Moses to stretch out his hands over the sea so that the sea would be divided. And remember, until Moses stretched out his hands, God didn't push the water back. But when Moses lifted up his hands over the sea, God pushed the water back. When he told Moses, stretch out your hands over the sea, then the sea to return now to its normal state. And he did, and guess what? God brought the waters back. He told the people, move forward. Walk on dry land. And the people moved forward, and they walked on dry land. Brother, what you're seeing here is this relationship between the sovereignty of God and his activity and their salvation and deliverance and their own personal responsibility and activity as children of God. They were to act. Moses was to act and the children of Israel were to act because they knew God was acting. They were to work because they knew God was working for them. That's what Moses told them up front. When they were there afraid on the side of the sea, not knowing what was going to happen, Moses says, you don't need to be afraid. You don't need to fear this situation. God's going to fight for you. God's going to work for you. God's going to intervene for you. You just need now just to go obeying. Walk. Put one foot in front of the other and walk through. You don't have to be fearful. I know the waters may be high and they may be they're gonna be way over your head, but just keep walking to the other side. God is sovereignly in control of this. God's working for you. You just need to obey Him now, knowing that reality that God is at work for you. Let me show you one other example. That gets it even a little further back. Stay in the Old Testament now. But go over to the book of 2 Chronicles. And go to 2 Chronicles chapter 30. 2 Chronicles chapter 30. Here in 2 Chronicles chapter 30. We have the restoration of the temple. We are having Hezekiah bringing back. The restoration of temple worship. And as he is bringing back the the worship here in the temple, he's wanting the people to come and to celebrate the Passover together. So in the opening verses of 2 Chronicles 30, he is sending out a courier to go out and to share this message and calling all the people to repent, return, come back, come back to enjoy and celebrate the Passover that they need to return back and do what it is that God has called on them to do. But sadly, when you look in verse 10, we see that Many of them responded in verse 10 by laughing at him and laughing at them to scorn them and mock them. But then we see in verse 11, nevertheless, there were some men of Asher, and Manasseh, and Zebulun who humbled themselves and they came to Jerusalem. There were some, actually probably a majority, that heard the call to come and repent and return and come back to Jerusalem and worship in the temple, and they laughed and they mocked the, the messengers and the message that they had delivered. But there were some that when they heard this message, they humbled themselves, they repented, and they returned and they came back to Jerusalem. So we see their response, we see their activity here in verses 10 and 11. But notice now, when you go to verse 12, verse 12 gives you the reason why this is. The hand of God was also on Judah to give them one heart to do what the king and the princes commanded by the word of the Lord. You see, beloved, what this passage here is teaching us is that those that responded rightly to what God was calling on them to do did it because God had given them the heart to do it. That is, he gave them the desire. God has so worked in their heart as it says, He gave them one heart to do what the king and the princes had commanded them to do by the word of the Lord. They were responding rightly. And I bring these to your attention to prepare us to look back at Philippians chapter 2. Because we're called on by God to do what God says for us to do. And what we see is that we will do it because He will be working in our hearts, down at the very core of our heart in the sense of our desires and our will to do things. This is why when we do what God says that we're supposed to do and we do it with the right heart, we turn around and say, God, I praise you, I thank you, I give you all the glory, I give you all the credit. But when I choose not to do it, I take all the credit. It's my fault. It's not God's fault. When I sin, it's my fault. I'm responsible. There's just a tension there that you just have to to wrestle with in your heart before the Lord. Jesus says, come to me, all of you who are weary, and I will give you rest. And then he turns around in another case and says, but no one can come to me, not unless my Father draws that person, not unless my Father grants that person. The Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. We go out and plead, call upon the name of the Lord. But then the Bible turns around and also says, but those who God calls, he justifies. There's a tension that is there. And this is what Paul is exploring with the people. And you see, beloved, this is why when we even think about the work for the salvation of others that we are to do, by praying for them, by proclaiming the gospel to them, by pleading with them to come to Christ. We do that because we know that God is at work in saving people. That's why we don't need to ever put our chest out or or, or boast in any way. We don't even need to be recognized with awards when we see people coming to know Jesus as their Savior because we don't get the credit for it. God does. All the glory goes to him. But if we don't pray for the lost, if we do not go out and proclaim the gospel to the lost, if we do not plead with them to come to Christ, God holds us accountable for our sinful disobedience. And this is what we're having here as we're now back in Philippians chapter 2. We're not talking about working for the salvation of others. Paul here is talking about the working out of your salvation. Remember, he's talking, he's not saying go work for your salvation. He's saying work out your salvation. That is, there is salvation that God has given to these people. He has saved them. But they still need to be working on putting to death the sin that is in their life. And what we saw is when we looked at verse 12, that surrounding this command of working out your salvation, that what Paul is wanting them to see is the way you you work out your salvation is by looking to Jesus... You need to be continually, consistently looking to the person of Jesus Christ, looking to His cross, looking to His example, looking to Him in the Word of God that you see, especially there in the Gospels, going back and looking how He lived His life in complete obedience to the will of the Father, no matter what the cost was. We also saw when we were looking at verse 12 that you need to be living in and among and under the love of the shepherds and the saints of the church where you are part of you need to be living with them he speaks of them as his beloved you need to be living with them under their love and their care and a part of you being a part of their love and care as well You need to be learning and growing from one another and from the Word of God. You need to be living out what it is that God calls on us to do. And then remember, the final point that we talked about was, for you to work out your salvation, you must be continually leaning on God. And that's where it brings in verse 13. Notice, follow the flow of what Paul says. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling for... Here's the reason why. Because you know God is at work in you. And God is working on your will and on your work for His good Pleasure. Work. God is at work. I know God's at work in me, and because I know He's at work in me, I want to join in with the work that God is doing in my life, that God is doing in my heart. So let's look at this verse in verse 13 this morning. As we're thinking about now God's sovereignty, God's role in our sanctification. Verse 12 is about your responsibility It's about your role, your activity, when it comes to your sanctification... That is, you're becoming more like Christ. You're being conformed to the image of Christ. You have, a, you have a role and a responsibility in that. And that's what verse 12 was all about. But he's saying, what ought to motivate you to do that is because of what you know from verse 13 about what God's doing. God's role. God's sovereignty. God's activity. Even in regards to your sanctification. And the first thing I want you to see is just who it is that is doing this work, and it is God. He says, For it is God who is at work in you. If you recall back in chapter 1 and verse 6, Paul says, I am a confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you. God Started the work of salvation in your life. And this may this must be the case. Because when we read over in Romans chapter 3, what do we see? Paul makes some universal statements. That is, you can go to any place in the world. I don't care what culture they're in. I don't care what color of skin they are. I don't care who they are, what their gender is. He makes some universal statements about mankind. And he says this, no one seeks after God. No one is righteous before God. No one understands God. No one understands, no one seeks. This is just the universal uh, condition of mankind. So he obviously, that makes sense when you read in chapter 1 and verse 6, God is the one, he says, who began. He started this good work of salvation in you. We seek God because God seeks after us. His Spirit convicts us of our sins and our need. Of Christ. And we even see in that verse in verse 6 of chapter 1, God doesn't just begin the good work, God promises to complete the good work. He will perfect it. But what we're being told here in Philippians 2 and in verse 13 is that God is also between the beginning and the end, he's, he is still working on on us working in us to make us more like Christ that should give us some hope that should encourage us that should strengthen our resolve to want to put to death sin because we know that God is at work doing that you want to say what is what's God's will for my life what what am I supposed to be doing well where is God working well, God's working in you. And that's the second question you should answer and think about when you think about God's role. Where is it God works? God works in you. He works in you. He works on the inside of you. See, what is on the inside? will at some point, begin to show itself on the outside. God is doing a work that goes from the inside out, not from the outside in. Far too often, we want to work on the outside and not really see the work happening on the inside. This is why Jesus, if you recall, back in the Sermon on the Mount, when he was talking to the the disciples and talking to the people, he says, you have heard it said, thou shall not commit adultery. And that is true. The Bible does teach that. But notice, remember what he says? But He says, but... I say to you, thou shalt not lust after a woman. That is, God's not just interested on the outside, God's interested on the inside of you. He's, he's wanting what's on the inside, your heart, your desire, your affections. Because God knows that you can be walking around as a man or a woman and never commit actual physical adultery, but you're lusting after other men or women in your heart all the time. And Jesus is saying, that's sin. God wants your heart. See, our primary problem, beloved, is not our environment, it's our heart. It's our heart. It's what's going on on the inside. That's why when we were, one time we were looking back in the book of Genesis, and remember Abraham or Abram made a a poor decision and he picked up his family along with Lot and he left the the land that God had given them. And remember, he went down to Egypt. And because he went down to Egypt, that did have an impact on the life of Lot. But even when they left Egypt and they came back to the promised land, they came back to the land and back to worshiping and doing what it is they were supposed to be doing. Remember, whenever there became a problem between the servants of Lot and the servants of Abram, and Abram said to Lot, look, I don't want any, there being any friction, any conflict between us. The, the whole place is before you. You pick where you want to go and wherever you pick, I'll go the opposite way. And you remember what drove Lot in his decision? What drove Lot in his decision was what he had seen and what he had experienced and what he had, had impacted on his life while he was in Egypt. So though he had left Egypt, he brought Egypt with him. Egypt was in his heart. And that's why he made the decision that he made, whereas Abram had not been impacted in that way. And that's what I mean. God is wanting to work on the inside of you, on the inside of us. You say, well, what exactly is God doing? Well, what is God doing in you? Well, look again back at our text in verse 13. God, He's at work, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. What's God doing? God is working on your will, and God then, through that, is working on your works. He starts on the inside of you, addressing your heart, addressing your will, addressing your desires. That word there for work is the same word that we use in English for energy. Saying God is the energy. That is, God is the one who enables. Enables your will and the work of working out your salvation. In fact, just to think about that for a moment. Go over... Uh, Go over to Colossians. Just go one book over to the book of Colossians. Go to Colossians chapter 1. Verse 28. Paul says, We proclaim him that's talking about Christ. We proclaim him, admonishing every man, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. For this purpose, I also labor. Here's Paul saying, look, I am going to labor. That is, that word for labor there is work to the point of exhaustion. And in that labor, he says, we're going to preach, we're going to teach, we're going to admonish. And we're going to do it for every man, every person that is here, that is a part of the church at Colossae. I mean, we are going to be striving and working and doing all that we can. But notice what he says in verse 29. This labor is striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. That's why Paul could say, I am what I am by God's grace. I, I may outwork all the others, but I know in the end I am what I am because of God's grace. Paul saying, look, I'm going to work and I'm going to strive and I'm going to work to the place where I am almost to the point of exhaustion. And But I know that ultimately, as I'm going out to proclaim Christ and admonish everybody and teach everyone with all wisdom because I want to see them complete in Christ, I know I have to do it according to His power, which mightily works in me. God is the one who must enable. Look, if you will, go back two books, just one book in front of Philippians now. Go to Ephesians chapter three for a moment. In Ephesians chapter three, beginning in verse 20. Paul here writes, now to him, and he's talking about God, who is able to, God has the ability to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think. And I'm thankful for that. And He does it according to the power that works within us. That works within us. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. To Him belongs all the glory because He's the one who has the ability to do far more abundantly beyond all that we could ever ask, all that we could ever think because it's all going to be done according to the power of God that's working within us. So what is it that God is doing? He is enabling us to actually do what it is He calls on us to do. Go back to Philippians 2. And in Philippians 2, you notice he says, For God is who is at work in you both to will. That word there for will speaks of your wants. What is this you want to do? It speaks of your desires. It speaks of your affections. And he's saying, God is at work on your desires. God is at work on your affections. God is at work on your will in that sense. Remember, go back to the example we read there in 2 Chronicles 30. God gave them that heart and they humbled themselves. Brother, I think a good example of this in our response, knowing that reality and knowing that truth, we should respond much like that we see. You don't need to turn there, but over in Psalm 119. Listen to the, the psalmist in Psalm 119 beginning in verse 33. Listen to what the psalmist is saying. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. Give me understanding that I may observe your law and keep it with all my heart. Make me, make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. And climb my heart to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. That idea there of declining your heart, he's saying, Lord, give me the desire. Give me the will. Give me the want to. Give me the affections for you, for your word, so that I won't fall trapped to dishonest gain. Make me. Notice he's saying, God, I want you to invade my life in such a way. You make me walk by the path of your righteousness. Give me understanding that I may observe your law. Teach me. This is the heart cry of the psalmist who knows that it is God who has to be at work in his heart, enabling him first by addressing his desires. You see, beloved, understand this. When you think about your life, all of us do exactly what it is we really want to do. We all do what we desire to do. Ultimately, that's what we will do. Because it will be the desires that will be driving us. And that's why God wants to work on our desires. He wants to work on our affections. You see, he's not just out for our outward behavior. Far too many times in trying to help people, this is all that's really addressed is their outward behavior. But God's not just looking on the outside. God's looking on the inside. You think about it even as parenting, as parenting. It's not just about a child's outward behavior. It's about their heart. It's about their desire. It's about their affections. We want our children to want the things and have the heart for God. We want what it is they choose to do or choose not to do to be driven by their affections and their desires that have been captured by Christ. We want them just to love Christ. Because whenever their desires are changing and their desires are being shaped by the Word of God and by the affections of God working in their heart, when that's happening, beloved, it will begin to show itself on the outside. Their behavior will begin to change. But we want that work taking place on the inside. So, who is this? It says God that is working in you, working on your will. He is the one that is prompting and He is the one that is producing in your life. You say, well, how does God do this? How does He do this? Well, He does it through the Savior, he does it through the Spirit, he does it through your situations, and he does it through the saints, the fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. He does it through the Savior, through the the supplications of Jesus, and through the sacrifice of Jesus. By the supplication of Jesus, what I mean is, is when you go back to John chapter 17, remember when Jesus was praying for his disciples, he didn't just pray for them. He says, I'm praying this also for those who will believe their word which trickles down to you and me as well. We are the part of the fruit of those first disciples and apostles who went out proclaiming the gospel and people got saved and those people proclaimed the gospel and they got saved and it's been continuing on for generation to generation. So whenever Jesus prayed for them, he was praying for you and for me as well and he prayed specifically for our sanctification because Jesus says, speaking to his father in prayer, says sanctify them. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So, beloved, God's working in our heart as a part of the response to the prayer of His Son that He prayed for us. But also, the Bible tells us that Jesus is interceding for us. Jesus is our advocate. Jesus is the one who sympathizes with us. The Lord is working through the prayers of Jesus, but He's also working through the sacrifice of Jesus. Not just in justifying us, but in sanctifying us. 1 John 1.7 speaks about if, if, if we walk in the light, we're supposed to walk in the light because he is in the light. And it says, and the blood of Jesus will continually cleanse you from all your sin. The blood of Jesus continually cleanses you. So how it is that God is working in us and sanctifying us, it is by the the blood sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why, again, knowing that the blood of Jesus continually cleanses us, we should follow that up from 1 John 1 and keep moving down to the end of the chapter and say, thus we want to confess our sins. Knowing that He is faithful and righteous, He's just to forgive us of our sins, cleanse us of all of our unrighteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Because I know this and I know this is what God is doing. I want to confess. But He also works through the Spirit. It is the Spirit that convicts us of sin. It's the Spirit that convinces us about righteousness and concerning righteousness. Think about it. The Bible says we're supposed to walk by the Spirit. The Bible says we're supposed to be led by the Spirit. The Bible says we're supposed to be filled with the Spirit. And what is it that the Spirit will use? He will use the Spirit-inspired scriptures. He We use the scriptures to renew our mind. Remember, this is what's changing our desires, changing our affections, changing the way we think. And that happens through the Word of God. The Spirit of God renews our thinking, renews our mind. We're told in Hebrews 4.12, it is the Word of God that's active and living that's able to get down to the very judgment of our hearts. And the Spirit takes that and exposes us. This is how it is that God's working. But also, beloved, he's also working through your situations. Your, through your situations. Turn with me for just a moment. Go back to the book of Romans for just a moment. Romans chapter 8. A verse that you're probably familiar with. Many of you probably know it from memory. But remember, we're thinking about how God is working. And in verse 28 of Romans 8, we're told, here's what we know. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. That verse doesn't say that everything that happens in our life is good, because it's not. But it's saying In every situation you find yourself in, it says God is at work in that situation for your good. And your good, as you read on, is to be conformed into the image of Christ. So we know when we find ourselves in good situations or tough situations... In situations that we can delight in or situations that are very difficult for us. We know God, it says, we know God is causing all things to work for our good. He's wanting to use that situation for our good to conform us into the image of Christ. That should give us a totally different perspective on our situations. That we see God is in this. And it's for my good because God loves us and he cares about us. Then finally, we've already talked about this before. God is—how How is God doing this? He's working through the saints. That is, he is using us as fellow brothers and sisters in Christ as instruments in his hand to help others be conformed into the image of Christ. This is how God is working. Let's go back in this one last point in Philippians 2. And it's the question of why. Why? Why is it that God is at work in us? Why is it that God is at work in us, enabling us, enabling our will and our works? Well, he gives you the answer to the question why at the very end of the verse. For his good pleasure. That idea of pleasure there speaks about satisfaction. God is working for his pleasure, his satisfaction, for his glory. Yes, as we just read a moment ago over in Romans chapter 8 and verse 28, God is causing all things to work out what? For your good. But also understand, beloved, he's working for his purposes, his pleasure. It's for His glory. And again, this should move us. This should encourage us. This should strengthen us to want to work out our salvation knowing that me working out my salvation is something that is pleasing in the sight of God. God takes pleasure in that. So here's what I would hope from all of us today is that we would all be motivated to work out our salvation. Knowing, knowing that God, God's at work. Even when you say, I don't feel like it. Don't base it on your feelings. God's at work. If God began a good work in you, He's still working. And remember, this working out of your salvation is something that is progressive. Progressive. It doesn't happen overnight. And you're going to keep working and keep working and keep working and just understand you're going to work till the day you die and you can't work anymore. You're going to work. You're going to be working out your salvation. But don't feel overwhelmed by that because you know as you work, you're just doing something that God's already doing in your life. That God's at work in me. And that, you know what, that just... That, that frees me. I don't have to carry around this burden. Oh, God, if I don't get it done, if I don't make myself conform to the image of Christ, oh, Lord, I just... You don't have to walk around like that. You don't have to walk around as a failure. You know God is at work. He's working in you. And yes, you know what? As you're working out your salvation, sometimes you are going to fail miserably. You are. You're going to fail miserably. But you know that God is at work. And you ask God to help you get back up on your feet and start putting your spiritual feet to work, walking one foot in front of the other, saying, Lord, I know I need to do this, but I know I can't do it without you. Oh, Lord, incline my heart to do it. Make me do it. Help me do it. You just keep on keeping on. Work. Work. Yet when you see the fruit coming in your life, remember, it's the fruit of the Spirit. So you give God all the credit. You give God all the glory. And I would encourage you to do as the psalmist did. Ask God. Ask God to incline your heart, to make you, to give you understanding, to teach you. But also remember this. This starts with you having salvation. It starts with you having salvation. Do you have it? Is the desire of your heart to follow Christ? Is the desire of your heart to trust Jesus as your Savior and Lord? Do you really have a heart for God? Oh, beloved, if that's not true of you this morning, where you need to start is you need to repent of your sins. You need to put your faith in Christ. You need to be truly saved. You you need to abandon everything else and come running to Jesus and trusting Him as your Savior and as your Lord. I want to ask you to bow your heads in prayer.